0: Welcome back to the Exit Ramp from Podwheels Powered by Radio Nemo. Hello again, everybody. I'm Greg Thompson, and it's great to be back with you on the podcast. Now, folks, for our June 5th trip back onto the Exit Ramp, we'll be reconnecting with Long Haul Paul and Jimmy Mack. As you guys will hear, the main catalyst. For this week's conversation was Jimmy Mack's interview with London-based writer and director Julian Simpson on the Saturday edition of Dave Nemo Weekend's Your Weekend 34. Now, as you guys all know, between radio, streaming music services, and podcasts these days, we all have an unlimited amount of listening choices. And that's part of our discussion here on the exit ramp on Pod Wheels, powered by Radio Nemo. As you guys will hear, we dive into a bit of radio history while we also discuss how all of these options speak to the individual who is choosing to spend part of their day as a listener. Paul, as Jimmy's getting ready to join us, I know from talking to you a little bit earlier that hearing Julian Simpson talk to Jimmy during their interview about Julian's roots and the BBC, that it brought back a memory for you. Now, I've always considered the BBC to be one of the world's standard setters, especially when it comes to bringing radio drama and music together. And Paul, these radio dramas, as you know, can paint such vivid pictures. And as we get going here, you had a brief example of one that comes to mind. Okay,
1: there were these people on this train and there was this conductor who lost his life, was scalded to death by steam to save a town because he ran it off the tracks. And then they hired Pete Seeger's sister Peggy and her husband to write songs about this. It's really one of the great archetypal radio models.
2: It's so cool to see the BBC inhabiting that space still. Hey guys, the other thing that was so much fun about listening to his stories as well about BBC, and we talked a lot during the heartbreaks as well about a lot of this stuff, is we just recently, a couple of months ago, interviewed David Hendy, who is a professor of media communications and the like out of England, who wrote a comprehensive biography of the BBC. Not one of those massive like eight-tone volumes, but a real big kind of thick telling of how the BBC comes into existence and that's part of its story so the thing you're talking about really plays in really nicely and the story about how the bbc if you guys love radio hendy's book is just something extraordinary because He talks about the three guys in the abandoned building full of rats kind of meeting on the riverbank, having been given the charge to create the BBC. As you both know, I'm a big fan. We talked about how the Road Dog Radio gets started and how things get started and get going and kind of build momentum. And that book is terrific. If you like that kind of stories, it is so worth checking out because it tells you how everything, like Doctor Who, the program you're talking about, the idea is that the BBC is the first one that makes a real commitment. It becomes the voice of the people. I I mean, it really does kind of fulfill that mandate where everybody from all walks of life are kind of given an opportunity to get in there and kind of make their voice heard. So it really is the people's radio to a large degree. The British solution to communism and socialism is to actually create the apparatus that makes people not have to think about that. The welfare state and the BBC both kind of spring out of the... Man- but a totally random topic, I often get phone calls from listeners who will tell me one program or another out of the federal government is a socialist plot. And I tell them it's anything but a socialist plot. And they'll bring up welfare, and I'll say, man, welfare is not socialism. I actually had to tell that to Kevin Rutherford one time. I'm like, stop saying that welfare is socialism. It's not. Welfare is an invention by the British in the early 20th century in an attempt to stop socialism. The idea that if you give people unemployment insurance, they're less inclined to organize behind your back and, like, march everybody to the guillotine. So the BBC is kind of the acknowledgement of that on the part of the British Empire and the Brits after World War One that if we want to prevent the rehearsal of the Russian Revolution being the actual main event being Germany or the United Kingdom, the best way to kind of stop that is by giving people not only a certain quality of life in regards to financially, but to give them a cultural life that they feel like they share a part in. It's really cool. It's a good book and it's worth checking out. It's called the BBC and it's in the Sleeper Cab Library edition. I think you kind of would dig it. And I really would love to throw something at both of you guys and give you guys a chance to spin on this. And we can start with Paul. Hey, Greg. Hey, Paul. Good to talk to you. I thought that Julian and I got into the conversation about the intimacy of both podcasting and radio that unlike a theater scene or a concert scene or a movie, you're not performing for millions. You're performing for an audience (laughs) of one. Now, there happen to be millions of that one on occasion. But ultimately, you've got to stay focused on the idea that you're talking to one person intimately. And Paul, any thoughts you have on that, I'd love to kind of dig into.
1: I really picked up on that as well. And because the medium is frequently consumed alone. by Itinerant workers or housewives working in their kitchen it's not consumed collectively. So I think the medium, that lends itself to a certain, maybe a greater depth that the medium can go towards for me. And I'm not trying to spin this around to my side gig as a musician, but most of our songs, it's, the analytics suggests are consumed by people who are out there working alone. There is a certain intimacy and how you can see these things in your mind. When Julian suggests that you can describe a monster and nobody will criticize the special effects because their imagination is doing all the work. And we just had the Indy 500. I've been to the Indy 500 three or four times. And my first experience there was such a bitter disappointment because we lived in the blackout area, but all we could have is the radio coverage. I could see the Indy 500 in my mind better than I could see it in person because it's such a huge track. You can't see the whole race. It's impossible to see the whole race. You can just see people, if you get a good enough seat, You can see them going down the straightaway and into a curve Well, the red cars ahead this time. Listening on the radio and imagining the race, you can see the whole race in your mind. It's a weird thing. When I heard that, it just dawned on me, that's why it was such a disappointment to watch the Indy 500 in person.
0: Well, one of the things that I go back to so often, and Julian talked about it today, when you look at Orson Welles, audio is this blank canvas. And Jimmy, you know this working on Snake train, you know this working in the radio, that audio is such a blank canvas, it is theater of the mind. That's what I think. And I think Orson Welles back in the thirties did this and did it set the standard. It's kind of like Paul and I were talking before we got going, Muddy Waters is considered the standard of the blues, Hank Williams is the standard of country music for a lot of people. Orson Welles is still the standard of the radio and we're talking almost hundred years removed from
2: that one of the things about the well situation too is because war of the worlds overwhelms everything i always tell people if you want to know how gifted he was as a radio producer not to go to war of the worlds first but to go to the first broadcast this is kind of a cool thing so when the mercury theater on the air begins it wasn't the Campbell Playhouse and it wasn't the Mercury Theater on the air. The original name of the show was First Person Singular. And we do this on the show all the time too. I'll do this. Tim does this. Dave does this as well. We will often kind of refer to the show as in the booth. And we don't mean in the booth like in the broadcasting booth. We mean in the diner booth. Because in some ways, what we're trying to do on the air is we like to imagine and we try to frame it this way of our listeners walking into a truck stop. And when they walk into the stop, Stop, They see us in a booth. They tell the waitress they're fine. They walk their way over to the booth. They sit down in the booth with us. And then from that point on, we then kind of have a conversation with them before the next person stops in. So what you get is you get us, whoever the guest is, and the listener are all sitting in the booth. And the listener is always in the booth while the other people, the guests on the show, drop in and out. And it's the same sort of intimacy in the same way that the three of us are sitting here on a Zoom, kind of leaning into each other and having this conversation. That makes such a big difference. And think about the last segment of the show today too with Bruce Beeler, literally in Alaska. He is both in his car or in a diner or in a hotel room kind of getting his adventure going and that they are riding along. They're in the booth with us while simultaneously in the car with Bruce making their way across the way. Julian and I had a conversation in the hard break as well about just this sort of thing about the idea of having that one-on-one relationship with your listener. The problem is, is that you don't want to be sitting across from a generic blank slate. You've got to, figure out who the exact person is you're talking to and hoping that exact person is indicative enough of your general and larger audience to kind of make that connections. I was looking forward to this show. It ended up being much richer and deeper in regards to both the content the callers gave and the content the two guests gave. I was very, very pleased.
0: When you're talking about audience, it's so important. And I think, Paul, you know this from writing songs. And I think your experience on Over the Road, the wonderful podcast that you guys produced with Radiotopia, knowing your audience, having an idea of who you want to speak to and how you want to form that relationship is so important because here we are in a podcast and folks are choosing to listen folks have got so many options these days. There's literally millions of options of ways to spend your time. So to do something that's interesting, that speaks to people and helps to brighten their day or move them in some way is so important.
1: Yeah, I think what I do find interesting are sort of these deep dives that you do, Jimmy, and I'm not trying to patronize you, but Smoking and the Bandit for example like the history the struggle of getting the film into development Burt Reynolds commitment all of those things sort of make it fresh again and interesting there's a Jesuit poet who I love by the name of Gerard Manley Hopkins who there's this line he has that there lives the dearest freshness deep down things so it's a dusty old movie that becomes interesting again I think people appreciate that and relate to it because these details people do really feed off the story behind the production of an album or a movie like i don't know if any of you have seen tales from the tour bus but it's all the backstories in any creative project just adds so much value you listen to the song differently you watch the movie differently i think that's kind of what i enjoy about these interviews that you're doing right now
2: what i really kind of enjoy the same as you do so we got a chance to talk to julian today about what it's like to actually make a podcast on location rather than in a studio i'm going to try to work in a couple of separate threads here we talked about the indianapolis 500 for you and the indianapolis 500 is an interesting bird here as well because mike florio who's a regular contributor on our show as well pointed out and colin cowherd has pointed this out too on his show that in the late 60s The three most popular sports in America, football and hockey are not part of the equation. NBA basketball is not even close. Three most popular sports in America are horse racing, boxing and baseball. And each one of them lends itself as a medium closer to radio than it does television. Because two of them happen in the blink of an eye where you can't process the whole thing because it happens so quickly in the case of boxing and horse racing. And one of them actually is the exact opposite where the longer of the game allow you to settle in. And therefore it becomes the responsibility of the announcer in all three of them to generate excitement and also to fill the space in between the times when nothing is happening. So with racing, nothing happens. Something happens. And then nothing happens again, and that's it. It's very quick, and it's over. So somebody has to set the scene. Then somebody has to describe the event in a complete kind of mosaic picture. And then somebody has to come in at the end and kind of recap the scene, but also recap the scene of a sense of you are there. In the case of boxing, you get these kind of flourishes of three minutes and the smack of leather, followed by these intermittent breaks where the space has to get filled up, followed again. Baseball, on the other hand, is nothing's happening for long periods of time, so you want somebody who can fill it up with conversation as if you're sitting next to somebody there the thing. Radio goes away as the principal source of the dissemination of information when it comes to sports and when it does, it pretty much puts the end to boxing and then it puts an end to horse racing, except for the major events because no one has to have the theater of the mind. The imagination of what the horse race looks like or what the boxing match looks like is replaced by the actual reality of it, which isn't as much fun as it was being described. Let's face it, most punches landed don't look that bad on television because of what TV does. It only looks good because if somebody's sitting ringside with a microphone that also goes back so where can radio have a re-entry point and i think in a lot of ways paul you hit the nail on the head scat pack who's a regular caller of our show he actually came on when we were Reads across america to talk to us about this stuff he said his favorite thing in regards to pictures about the show any sort of commentary is the behind the scenes stuff so you get julian's interview today and yesterday bs levy came on to talk about his podcast his radio book his collection of books Did you guys get a chance to hear that, the last Open Road series of books? And that, in many ways, is the same sort of thing. And I think there's something about the 70s energy, like the apocalypse now, where I have a budget, but I'm also kind of flying blind by the seat of my pants. There's something corporate about this that I think a lot of people are really attracted to. People like the idea of building things in your garage, but they like the idea of building incredibly quality things in your garage even more. And I don't know if any of that makes sense, but it's an attempt for me to kind of pull together about three days of programming and make (laughs) some sort of sense of it. Because I was really overwhelmed by a lot of what Julian and what B.S. Leedy had to say yesterday. So if either one of you guys want to kind of pontificate on that, I've done enough pontification. So.
1: I was amazed at how streamlined Julian's process was. So he has one editor that looks at what he does. When we did Over the Road, we did everything on Google Doc. I would write an essay on some of the episodes. I would write a personal essay, and there would be four people weighing in. And it took some getting used to. If I was a little too full of myself, someone would call me out on it. And Ian Koss, the producer and sound designer, he's a slightly built guy, but in the creative space, he's Rocky Marciano. And I don't mean that in a negative way. What we did was a collaborative method of storytelling, which took place on Google Doc, which they've distilled into an art form. But for Julian to just have one editor, I was amazed at that. I would not have the chops to create at that level. What we did over there was an effort of four people. I was just the guy narrating. I'm not trying to project false modesty here. I never could have done that on my own. Maybe that's why I, sometimes I still catch myself listening
2: to it. By the way, before we throw this back to Greg, who I know has a point here, I had a thought of asking something. I did say this, but didn't make it clear. Julian Simpson was the showrunner for the BBC New Tricks, the police procedural about the three geezers in golf pants detectives who were kind of charged with solving cold cases at Scotland Yard. and. He he had made the comment about working in the writer's room and working with the producers and working with the people over at the BBC and I wonder, Paul, in a way of kind of both giving him a compliment and also kind of understanding the process, I wonder if all those voices are still in his head which makes it possible if those same voices have kind of stayed with him working their way through. (laughs) The idea that he learned enough from having dealt with all those voices to kind of figure out what their notes would be and be able to be a singular artist working with a single editor. It was interesting to me. It did strike me as interesting too, the idea that the intellectual force of that you know this from writing music I think the idea that it's like if you do something long enough it's amazing how simple it all seems after 40 years of doing it right
1: I have two or three people that I send my songs to if the song is good to them then I think it's a good song But you are right in what you're saying. When all that feedback's in your head, over time, there's less of a tug of war, if that makes any sense, because you're predictive of that feedback. That's a good line, predictive
2: of that feedback. Go ahead, Greg.
0: Right. And I think that what we're talking about here is it's so important to listen. And I think that your interview with Julian was fascinating to me on many, many levels, because having started my career in radio and then working in newspapers and then evolving into to the work that I've done in the trucking industry. And it's all about communication. When I was listening to Julian, what I found very interesting, and to Paul's point as well, is that if you find a group of collaborators that you really like, you're able to listen to each other and you have folks that you trust, you can take it in a lot of different directions. And again, having that blank canvas, which is we can do things with audio that you can't do visually because everybody's got their own imagination. And it's a matter of knowing your audience, reaching out to the audience and speaking to the audience. And to Paul's point, they did a lot of that over the road podcast series through Google Doc. And when you think about what we're able to do right now, we're in three disparate locations. We're having a conversation and we're putting something together that people can listen to the opportunity to collaborate and communicate has never been greater than it is right now
2: I think that there are both immense opportunities and some real risks involved with it too. There was a remarkable thing that if I can find it, I have found bits and pieces of it online, but it's amazing. In a world that we live in, right, where there is so much access to so many things, the one thing you really want to find, desperately want to get your hands on, is the one thing that you can't find. There was this great Omni article in the 80s where six filmmakers, including Mel Brooks, Michael Douglas, Susan Seidelman, David Lynch, among others, talked about about what filmmaking in the future would look like. One of the things that all of them to a person agreed upon was as technology accelerated, as the opportunities for cheaper video cameras and cheaper sound equipment that was still of high quality, the opportunity, what happens, you don't want Shakespeare to fall between the cracks in some public school. You don't want that to happen, nor do you just want the elite picking the next poor person who is Shakespeare either. The opportunity to kind of create your own thing and do your own thing. In that way, because of the opportunities of communication, And we have opportunities to create space for those who might not have been given space and maybe not miss the next big thing that's the great side of it. The negative side of it, and this is a trucking analogy here, we will often get calls from older drivers who adore ELDs, who adore all the kind of bells and whistles of automatic braking and reaction times and new kinds of cameras and new kinds of surveillance that allow them to do their job better. The ones who succeed with it are always the ones who like, I still have to do the job in the exact amount of rigor, danger, and execution as I did it before. These are tools that allow me to do my job better. And you You can hear it because you actually will get people who will do a podcast or do a production or do a video and they literally are just throwing every single bell and whistle that the technology provides and you get what I call this mushy mess where you're like you're not using those tools you think those tools are the reason why you haven't had quality content before some of the best podcasts are often just one dude talking with a little bit of music underneath them and people are gripped because at the end of the day a great story is what it comes down to and I think the technology serves those who already could have served themselves provided they had a platform before and are now using the opportunity for the platform to do something great. The danger is that it does create the illusion that everybody can do it which is no more true today than it was three or four decades ago. That's sort of my little soapbox about technology but I think it's a great point Greg.
0: It is. It absolutely is and when you think about it literally there are two million podcasts in the world but I'm going to sound like a podcast snob here but there's a lot of them that just aren't listenable because it's very easy to take out your iPhone record voice memo and throw it up on any platform you want
2: and the other thing is too to kind of break your point too. there are a lot of them there are 2 million out there but look at them how many petered out they're still up there but you go back and you're like the last one you recorded was two and a half three years ago four years ago or they don't follow the rule of an editorial column I always tell people that it doesn't matter whether you do it twice a month once a month four times a year provided you do it when you say you're going to do it and let it fall on a regular basis then in fact it works and that was the problem with snake we literally were doing one snake a month we did 12 snakes over 12 months then the pandemic hit and one of my big resistant points of relaunching it is i want to make sure there's enough material and enough of a backlog in place so that we can actually start getting this done
1: well you make several good points there we're living in an era of the democratization of production i've got a wonderful producer his name is jeff templeton he said we're living in an era when anyone who wishes to can put out an album anyone can put out an album but it doesn't mean they should there were 500,000 active podcasts on Apple at last point. And a podcast, Rowan Mars once, Riley observed, a, a podcast like Genital Herpes is forever. Just because you can make a podcast, just because the tools are there. I don't know. It's a lot harder than it seems. It takes more time. Just the level of sound design that you have in Snake, that just looks like a lot of work, like maybe a month per episode.
2: Not that much, but my wife would be thrilled to hear you say that, by the way, because she tells people, she said, if you think five minutes of content is easy, that's one of the things that Julian said when we got to the break. He said, a lot of your listeners might not know this, but that's just not dropping sound bits in. That's a lot of work, and to get it right is a lot of work. It really is. I appreciate that.
0: It's been tremendous to be with you guys, and I've looked looking forward to the next time we get together Jimmy before we close this I want to go behind the scenes of what you did that's going to be broadcast on Sunday you went to Phoenix for the event Want to get your thoughts about that whole experience.
2: So we flew over to Phoenix, of course, as you know, as the guest of night. It was a last minute thing. Usually these things are planned way in advance. When they came on as a client, we had a great meeting with them where they were talking about the things they were excited about, and they brought up the fleet of heroes, these truck wraps. Look, I'll be really honest with you. There are times when people kind of have these things, and my patriotism, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I am what you would call an old time patriot. I cry at the drop of a hat, but I'm also very, very careful about my patriotism in the sense that I often think that things celebrate rather than contemplate, if that makes sense. They will be often celebratory and triumphalist. That's a word that's really important to me because if something feels triumphalist, I try to avoid it. I found their raps to be incredibly, not only tasteful, but have a certain mournful quality about them. When we made the decision to go, it was understanding about how the kind of reverence they treated the stuff with was and to watch it kind of play itself out in this kind of respectful sort of solemn memorial sort of way really kind of confirmed the decision when we were talking. They told me about it. I said, we'll come there. I said, if you guys are willing to kind of figure this out, we'll make a point of showing up there at the last minute. And they accommodated us terrifically, set us up with a table. There was a discussion about going inside and recording the interviews. But I just thought, given the energy on the grounds at the transportation hub at night, that it would just be too much of a missed opportunity not to be there live on the scene when we did it. In retrospect, people will be hearing this tomorrow. There are a number of those interviews, particularly a number of the veterans, who I I think of breakout stars just some remarkable stuff so i hope people enjoyed it i enjoyed doing it
0: paul where are you off to and where are you going to play next we just finished a
1: wonderful show at farmland historical center so there is a town in indiana that's literally named farmland indiana and they've done some wonderful restoration of that little community lots of great conversations so, June 25th, we're going to do a nice area truck show called the Friends of Simpsonville, which is a company picnic slash public truck show. There's a lot of really cool old iron there. And what's interesting is you've got a lot of young guys who are restoring these old trucks, and it's aesthetically a very beautiful thing. So, June 25th, Friends of Simpsonville truck show in Atlanta,
2: Indiana, near Tipton.
0: And looking forward to next week's topic. Any thoughts about that?
2: We're going to Nashville for a couple of days join Dave and Donna over in Nashville because we're going to be part of the TCA safety and security meeting that they're having over there. That's probably going to do a lot of kind of the push and pull of it. And one of the things that we're doing in regards to topics next weekend is we're talking about vacations to remember. That's going to be Saturday's show. And then the Sunday show is called A Dive Off the Deep End. I always, every summer, try to do at least one water sport show about water water. water skiing, water parks, sitting by the pool, really kind of deep diving into water. So there's going to be a lot to talk about. And I think it's kind of funny because a vacation to remember and a dive off the deep end and a safety meeting, I think there's some (laughs) connective tissue between all those things. I think we'll be fine.
0: Absolutely. And, And I tell you what, homework for everybody. I want you to bring a vacation to remember from years ago. I've got one from 43 years ago. I think that especially long haul drivers will appreciate. We were out for 22 days as a five member family on the road and we went hmm. a long way. We put in a long haul. Guys have a safe, good week. Jim, safe travels to Nashville. Say hello hey. to everybody.
2: Did you guys enjoy the two snakes we played? They're ridiculous, weren't they? Absolutely, yeah. I love the tongue and. cheek big
1: aspect Tongue firmly planted in cheek, I think's so. how Julian referred to one of his shows. I don't mean to use the word cute in a patronizing way, but I think it's
2: cute. It's a wink. It's a wink. And the joke we make about Snake, sydney has got a great joke about Snake. He's exuberant in his egomania. Because of it is like Snake is awesome, but the reason Snake is awesome is because his friends are awesome and therefore everybody's awesome, which makes him completely bearable. You know what I'm saying? It's not that he's number one, is that he's in the number one group of people. And that's a big difference. So thanks, guys. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Thanks for spending part of your day with us on The Exit Ramp, a podcast
0: from Podwheels powered by Radio Nemo. Before we close out this edition of the podcast, we would like to invite you to stay connected with the latest from Podwheels powered by Radio Nemo by downloading our smartphone app. You can start using the Podwheels app by accessing the download menu option on our podwheels.net website or by searching Podwheels in the Apple Store or on Google Play. Finally, folks, be sure to check back with us right here for the latest episode of The Exit Ramp from Podwheels powered by Radio Nemo.